Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 11th of August, 2021. Welcome to Just After One O'Clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, White Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands. Um, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, A-levels and, uh, well, what joy COVID has brought everybody that uh, was doing exams or not this year. And now we mentioned these two uh, articles from The Telegraph and The Guardian on Friday's programme. Uh, universities set entrance exams amid A-level chaos, said The Telegraph. Uh, and The Guardian was highlighting the, uh, the press release from the UK government for extra cash for medical schools and also dental schools so that uh, they could take in more students uh, in 2021 and so on. So uh, that of course, was all very prescient because the results came out and uh, lo and behold... Everybody had done very well. Everybody, everybody has done very well. Um, so in Plymouth, for example, uh, it didn't matter whether you went to the grammar school or to uh, the schools that are traditionally, uh, you know, held uh, classes for um, students that struggled a bit more. They yeah. all seemed to get A's and A stars. Uh, so 40, I think something in the region of 45% got A's and A stars this year. In 2019, it was something like 20%. Um, so COVID has been fantastic. It has helped all that, the economy. It's helped education. It has helped education yep. because clearly everybody staying at home for the last 18 months um, has done wonders for their education. So because everybody has got A's and A stars and it's now impossible to tell the difference between them, uh, well, The Telegraph has a new headline today and it's this. A-level a grades could be scrapped to end top marks for all, free for all, sorry. Um, and uh, this means that they would be moving towards the model that they introduced for GCSEs a couple of years ago, where instead of uh, uh, letters, um, you go for numbers. Um, so for GCSEs, you've got uh, one to nine uh, instead of uh, A, B, C, D, and E, as it was when I was doing A-levels. And, and I think maybe there was an F, maybe if you were very lucky, and maybe a U as well, if you were particularly lucky. Um, but Alex, obviously the problem for the universities is how the heck do they decide who they're going to take in and who they're not. Uh, they are very happy nonetheless that the, all these people with uh, student loans are on their way. Um, and certainly the student loans company is very happy because they're uh, providing extra sessions for all these additional students um, so they can get their finance sorted out for the coming year. Um, but uh, nonetheless, this can only have a chilling effect on, you know, uh, on a long-term basis, because if people haven't done the work for A-levels this year and, they, and the, the grades they got aren't really representative of the position they're at academically, how are they expected to get past an Oxbridge course? On current showing and current trends, Mike, half the country can now get into Oxbridge. But uh, the pinch point for these wonderful economic interests you have just outlined is the buildings. Uh, our good universities, uh, Oxbridge, the Red Bricks, the old Scottish universities have got a capacity of a few hundred thousand entrants between them. But if we're now saying half the country is entitled to an elite degree, then they can only be doing that largely remotely, where the overheads are extremely low, like a lot of other internet-based businesses. And you, your good summary of the economic interests at play in this great inflation is actually not even complete, because we know from the early 20th century onwards, that the captains of industry arranged as tax-exempt foundations made a particular point on both sides of the Atlantic of dumbing down successive generations of students. This is on the record. Ministers and secretaries of state for education in various Western countries said so openly in the 1940s. Uh, one of the projects my father's undertaken in retirement is tracing the rise and fall of literacy 
And he's quite certain from various data sources now that the high point was his generation, the 50s and 60s, uh, when you were in uh, school and university. Since then, it's been down and nobody cares. There is, however, one countervailing interest, which is that hedge funds and uh, banks of the and uh, investors of the order of Goldman Sachs have uh, bought up a lot of student accommodation, particularly in overcrowded Britain. And you have that right there in Plymouth. And they seemed to be on a nod and a wink that uh, obligatory education for up to 21 was on the way and that they had a nice captive market. So perhaps we'll stand back and, and uh, get reach for the popcorn as this, uh, this is fought out. Uh, well, look, we've got to ask ourselves why. What, what is the motivation to, to generate this situation? Of course, the truth is, Alex, it seems to me um, that if you've got an, e an economic reality where there are no productive jobs for anybody, then the best thing to do is keep them in education for as long as possible. Um, the student loan company is going to finance that in the meantime. Uh, of course, they don't have to pay that back until they reach a certain salary threshold. So, uh, you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter how many people come out with pieces of paper at the end of the day. There aren't going to be the jobs waiting for them. And so that money is effectively equivalent to universal basic income. Yes, it's, it's the state taking charge of you up to your early 20s, or as David has seen from the Scottish model, if you've ever been in uh, social care for a day in your life, that will be up to 26 in increasing numbers of Western countries. And it is a good way of taking unemployment figures down, isn't it? Because in the 80s and 90s, with the slumps that we had there, there was a lot of uh, hair tearing out about people in their 20s unemployed. And at one stroke, this became in the 90s, the dialogue of the needs, those not in education, employment or training. So it is another level of make work schemes, look busy and stay off the employment, uh, the unemployment figures. And of course, the other uh, thing going along with this is that schooling, very much primary schooling, but all the way up to college level now, is also about the formation of mental attitudes. And uh, some academics are even using language like, while we've got them captive, we inoculate them and give them antibodies against wrong think. Uh, so of course, for that reason alone, you want to hold people for, long, for longer, for more years. It's got less and less to do with productiveness and economic independence of the household. Uh, yes, that's a very good point. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on. And Julian uh, Assange is back in court or not back in court because of course he's still in Belmarsh. He didn't go to court. It was by video link. Um, this is for uh, the appeal by the US government. Um, so the US government is going to try to rerun the arguments that have already been settled by two different judges. This is a statement from uh, the uh, uh, Assange defense website. Um, they certainly seem to be running the same old narratives. Um, so he appeared by video link this morning. Uh, he's been in Belmarsh, of course, since 2019. Um, act, lawyers acting on behalf of the United States said that uh, he had orchestrated one of the largest thefts of data in history. That seems like a strange twisting of the facts, but anyway, no, no problem. It was said in court, must be true. Uh, Claire Dobbin QC, who was speaking for the, uh, representing the United States, said that uh, they intend to argue that uh, the focus on uh, his psychiatric state and claims that he doesn't, in other words, he, they are saying that he doesn't meet the threshold of being so ill that he cannot resist harming himself. Uh, it really requires, she said, a mental illness of a type uh, that the ability to resist suicide has been lost. Uh, various people turned up for, uh, for to protest outside. Not very many, I have to say. There were a couple of hundred there, I think. Um, really need to be a few more for this. Jeremy Corbyn turned up. Uh, of course, his uh, Assange's partner uh, turned up as well. Um, and uh, so uh, the U.S. is saying that uh, 
Uh, he has been able to withstand the dire conditions uh, inside the Ecuadorian embassy, and therefore it should be no problem to deal with uh, incarceration in the United States. Uh, his, his partner, Stella Morris, uh, visited him in prison on Tuesday, apparently, uh, and then she issued an appeal to Joe Biden to drop the case. Um, she said that the U.S. government is exploiting the inherently unfair uh, arrangement between the U.S. and the U.K. They're explicit. They're exploiting, the, sorry, the imprisonment of an innocent man accused of practicing journalism. For every day that this uh, colossal injustice is allowed to continue, Julian's situation grows inc increasingly desperate. So uh, thanks to uh, Drew from Let Me Look TV for the video footage this morning. But uh, um, Alex, uh, will this ever end is the question. I think when you get into this territory of mental competence for trial, all kinds of dirty tricks can be played. Uh, splits can be introduced between a defendant and his nearest and dearest and his legal team. And uh, it's all on the say-so of experts, because, of course, juries get to hear the, the, the guts of the trial and decide on the facts, uh, guilty or not. Uh, but everything else, including fitness to stand trial, is the, ju the judge sitting without a jury hearing arguments from so-called experts. Uh, so this is not going to end in any clean manner. And I see in the chat box there's the usual spread of people uh, that you get in the new media from Assange is a hero to Assange is just another plant. Uh, it's not about Assange the man, of course, it's about the principles. And uh, if this can be done to uh, Assange as a kind of uh, whack-a-mole figure, you know, as a kind of don't you other guys do this, uh, it can be done to UK Column or anyone else next time. So even those who have their questions about WikiLeaks as an outfit and think that Assange was baited or the bait himself, this could happen to anyone else. And, uh, you know, the, the mental capacity route, I'm afraid, is is the, the most devious of all. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so if that's a censorship issue, then let's move to the Netherlands uh, and another censorship issue, this time with respect to Pfizer. Yes, the uh, small and growing uh, Dutch uh, opposition party, the Forum for Democracy, continues to have excellent individual members of parliament who go from strength to strength. And as usual on UK column, we do not plug the party system. The manifesto and whipping party system is the root of many of our political ills, as we keep saying. But here uh, we find that one of the new MPs for the Forum for Democracy, uh, a chap whom I've uh, personally met and uh, very impressed with, a former Dutch civil servant, Pepijn von Howellingen, uh, has put this up on the party website. The uh, headline translates as Pfizer's secret contract, and it goes into detail about uh, the Albanian and Brazilian contacts with Pfizer, which have been leaked. We're doing another separate piece of written work, which will include more detail on this strand and many others. But here is the FVD's summary of what the Albanian and Brazilian contracts uh, with Pfizer have laid upon those governments. Uh, for example, Pfizer accepts no responsibility whatsoever for side effects of the jabs. The purchasing governments accept uh, full uh, indemnity for that. The purchaser must... Uh, accept uh, and, and acknowledge to Pfizer in the contract that long-term effects of the, quote, vaccine, unquote, remain unknown. The purchasing government must acknowledge that the effectiveness of the so-called vaccine is unknown. The purchaser must acknowledge that there are uh, unknown side effects which could occur. And um, the last bullet point here, um, more, uh, cheaper and more effective medication that is against COVID-19, such as ivermectin, must not allow, be allowed to be a pretext for cancelling the contract before time. And this is uh, interesting because we now have, we reported, uh, first of all, from the Barcelona outlets, La Vanguardia, that the EU at EU level 
signed on behalf of its member states a very similar contract. Israel and many other Latin American and African countries are coming up with similar leaks now. So we have every reason to accept, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to presume that the same wording is in the secret Dutch contact with Pfizer, uh, which has not yet come out. Uh, but here is the main uh, in meat of it. Mr. Von Howellingen has tabled us in the privileges of an MP 33 questions to the health minister, Hugo de Jonge. And here are the key ones. Are you aware that Pfizer's Latin American CEO acknowledged under oath in testimony to the Brazilian Senate that Pfizer has the same uh, terms and conditions for every country? What is meant in the English language of this is the Latin American and, and uh, Albanian contracts, but they're all the same worldwide, we're told. What's meant by Pfizer's English wording, any device, technology or product used in the administration of or to enhance the use or effect of such vaccine? And a follow-up question to that one is number 19. Do Are there other so-called vaccines that use technology or devices? Which ones? And uh, towards the bottom, number 23, how can you, that's the Dutch health minister who now has these questions in writing to rip onto in due course, how do you, minister, uh, square your insistent pronouncement that I can be plain that there are no long-term effects, for that it means from the COVID vaccines, with Pfizer's requirement and stipulation in its contracts with Albania and Brazil uh, that there are... Uh, we don't know about the long-term effects. Uh, so this, uh, I think if I just move this across, there's, there's uh, oh no, that's the, that's the end of that slide. That was enough detail for one. Uh, we, we await to see with bated breath what Mr. De Jonge will say about the, uh, in, in answer to the 33 questions which Mr. Von Howellingen has tabled. At the very least, this shows that when you get uh, former civil servants with their, their heads screwed on and put them in parliament with much less corrupted parties than the main line ones, this is the kind of effect you can have. Okay, and then let's move on to Alex Berenson. Yes, uh, he's a former New York Times journalist, and he writes now like a, a growing number of this chuffed and, uh, and censored mainstream journalists. Uh, he writes on his own Substack page. He calls his blog Unreported Truths, and you can see the URL there, white on black. And uh, here he's reporting that Moderna has uh, failed in its statutory duty in the United States uh, to report to VAERS, the American uh, repository database for uh, adverse vaccine effects, uh, a large number of the adverse reactions that have been made known to Moderna as a manufacturer. Uh, there are 300,000 reports of adverse vaccine reactions to Moderna in the United States that Moderna knows about from its own database and software. <clears throat> but many times fewer than that have found their way to VAERS. And if you tap again, I think we have more detail on that. The 300,000 figure comes from an internal update provided to employees by a little known but enormous company called IQVIA, another one of these companies that's there for the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, there are screenshots in the original people can go to that show uh, this is for internal employees only. Uh, as in the United States, so also around the Western world, whatever the national um, adverse vaccine database rea uh, reaction database is, there is a statutory duty on medics to report to that theirs or um, uh, the yellow card system in Britain. Um, what everything that they get, but a lot of physicians, because they're badly trained and deliberately so in this regard, genu genuinely do not know uh, about this. We know of you know people talking in the new media about the death of a relative, after which they say to the surgeon attending the patient, uh, "Will you report this to VAERS, stroke yellow card, or whatever the national system is?" And the surgeons say, "What's VAERS?" 
so in some cases, they're genuine innocence on the part of the medics. In other cases, of course, they are, it would seem, deliberately withholding notification and uh, perhaps satisfying their consciences that by telling the manufacturer themselves, it will get there in the end. But of course, it doesn't in many cases. Back to the Netherlands. Yes, you were going to say. No, no, go ahead. I'll... Yes, back... Back to the Netherlands, Black Box uh, is an extremely good Dutch alternative channel going, again, uh, upper league uh, almost every month now. And a lot of their interviews are with non-Dutch interviewees and therefore done in English original anyway. Uh, here, there's one an interview with a recently retired Dutch uh, heart surgeon, uh, Professor Jan Grandjean. And I put this up largely because it's another one of the uh, instances that Brian recently reported on of continental doctors and uh, researchers talking about mind control and even using the English terminology. So in the interview with Black Box, Professor Jan Grandjean, uh, who's from Twente in the east of the Netherlands, says that the girls studying cardiology nowadays don't even know that vitamin D3 boosts immunity. But they can tell you all about cholesterol blockers. In other words, there's money to be made there. So they've been trained in that. And he even points out that there's been a change of Dutch name in medicine. He says, in my generation, we called it geneeskunde, which literally translates as the art of healing. But now these younger people have studied the uh, the Anglo-American term has been imposed, medicine. And in Dutch, it's even pluralized now, medicines. So if you go for a medical degree now in the Netherlands and some other continental countries, it's even called a degree in medicines, which makes it pretty obvious that the financial aspect triumphs. Uh, Grongjean goes on to say more about that. He says, it is certainly mind control, but I don't know by whom. When the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, recorded a film clip for Gavi, Bill Gates' his, uh, vaccine alliance in early 2020, and of course you can search ukcolumn.org for Gavi and find an excellent article or two about it. He says, I thought to myself, this is going to end badly. Rutte is only going on about vaccines, nothing else. And then asked about virology, he gives an opinion quite similar to many other dissident doctors now, especially those recently retired. He says, I'd never want to be a virologist. You're working with stuff you can't see and drawing conclusions you can't prove. He says, key virologists are working for a great many other interests and are discovering a power they never had before. And a final quotation from him, he says, when we look back on this period, we will describe it as a collective blackout. He says, we will get over it, but I'm amazed at how the mind controllers have instilled such fear that people can't think rationally. So there we are. This, uh, As a proportion of the population, Black Box reaches quite a large slice of the Dutch. And uh, some of their investigations, like the one we covered recently of a, a young woman who's been left crippled by her jab, uh, do reach by word of mouth something around 10 or 20 percent of the Dutch population. So they're getting on very well here. Over to uh, a less reported country, the tiny population uh, country of Iceland. This here is the large uh, equivalent of a red top in Britain, so a, um, a popular tabloid uh, newspaper. And uh, they're reporting Thorolver Gunnarsson, who is the most prominent epidemiologist in the country. And uh, in fact, recently the same newspaper was covering him saying... Uh, uh, quite striking things when he was asked, do you think we'll still have COVID measures in place in 15 years? He said, I can't rule it out. But he's no creature of the system, it seems, because he's now, uh, in his uh, advice to the Icelandic government, said that herd immunity, is the word in the title there, will not be achieved by co continuing the current course. Fortunately, Mr. Berenson again has had an Icelandic viewer tip him off, and he has summarized in English from that viewer what was said, so you don't have to rely on an auto-translation. Um, and Mr. Berenson summarizes as uh, 
that's uh, Thor Ober Gunnarsson says that natural infection, letting the infection run its course, is the, now the only way to reach herd immunity. In fact, in the middle of the original Icelandic, Mr. Gunnarsson says, uh, we tried jabbing and it didn't work. Uh, and then he, the follow-up to that, the second tweet by Alex Berenson is that uh, Thorolf Gunnarsson is not going to propose more lockdowns or widespread boosters. And particularly, Gunnarsson talks about no, no more jabbing of young people. Uh, they do want to vaccinate teens, but they are getting pushback, he says, from an Icelandic reader. So there we are. There's, there's a country which is pretty much in the same bracket as Sweden culturally, uh, telling it like it is. And there's, there's fewer networks of corrupt control in these Scandinavian countries. So this will be what a lot of the rest of European epidemiology is thinking. Uh, yeah, fascinating, I think. Yes. Okay. Well, best I can do on that one. Yes. Very, very briefly, uh, just to mention this, this must be going on in, in other parts of the country as well. But uh, the uh, Belfast uh, Health and Social Care Trust has published figures uh, about the levels of resignations from nursing staff uh, in uh, their trust. And uh, they've, they've given a breakdown, which is different to the other Northern Irish uh, NHS trusts. Um, so Belfast uh, Health and Social Care Trust saying that 315 nurses have left between the 1st of January and the 31st of July for various reasons. Now, those various reasons included, uh, I think, two deaths uh, and uh, people that have retired and so on. But the numbers of retirees are very are relatively small. Uh, but the, the basic point is here that out of 315 uh, nurses that have left this one trust, uh, 182 resigned. Uh, and the question then is why? Uh, mostly it seems to be the case that they are resigning because they uh, aren't appreciating the workload within the NHS. And um, by that, I mean the, the consistent night shifts, the, the, the uh, pressure. pressure and the long hours. Uh, and it seems that many of them are heading towards agency work instead, where perhaps they have some more control. I'd be very interested to know whether this is happening uh, nationwide. I suspect it is. Um, but of course, uh, some people now saying that this is putting even further pressure um, on the NHS, um, which of course makes it turns it into a, a continuing downward spiral because when people leave, there's more pressure on those that remain. So that's going to encourage more to leave. So uh, and often it's the it's the experience, the long term experience people that leave. Same is going on with school teachers that it's people who've been in the profession for a long time. They've seen how it was. They see how it operates now. And that affects their decision to leave. Yes. Where does well, that take us? Well, uh, it brings us to this document. I'm going to say thank you to the lady that flagged it up for me. We're going back to April 2020. Uh, but really, we're getting some significance by the terminology being used. So this is health in humanitarian crisis centre. Uh, it's uh, from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We've got guidance for prevention of COVID-19 infections amongst high-risk individuals in urban settings. Uh, so this is the table of contents. But this is the bit that really caught the eye of the UK column viewer because we're creating shielding green zones. And uh, the green seem to interface with all matters green that are coming up at the moment and climate change and uh, the green economy. And so although this document was back in 2020, we're saying it's interesting the terminology being used that you're going to shield people uh, within green zones. Just highlight this lady, bottom less, Caroline Favaz. We'll come back to her in a minute. But this is the uh, table showing the general inclusion criteria for shielding. 
if you're 60 years old and above, um, then you are going to be uh, top of the list. And as, uh, as you go down through it, we've got all sorts of people with various problems from hypertension to known HIV positive status, tuberculosis, uh, adults who've recently recovered from measles. So everybody classified. And uh, these are people that are going to be included in the shielding um, actions. Pregnant women get a mention. Other immunodeficiency conditions there, including sickle cell disease and other chronic infections. Now, this is the bit where it gets interesting because in the document, we start to see uh, how people will be uh, put into green shielded conditions. So the one on the left, option one, is to do with the household level. And you might have somebody who is shielded by being shut in a room uh, within one dwelling. Or we can come across to streets and we could have several dwellings uh, given the green shielding classification and uh, people are going to stay within them. Or it can be um, extended to within neighbourhoods. Uh, but if you um, if you read the detail on this, this is very clearly a system for shutting people down, making sure they can't move out of their area. And if we compare it with what's happening in Australia at the moment, in particular, where we've got draconian shutdown, uh, we find this a very interesting document um, because it seems to be producing the conditions to shut people down, to lock people up. Um, but not to worry, because if they suffer from men mental health problems, then the mental health teams are going to go in to sort them out. They're not going to be um, put into contact with friends and relations. So the document is 2020. But what we're saying is that it's particularly interesting that uh, the shielding or the lockdown is given the green identifier. And we're now moving into a period of uh, all matters green. Uh, this links in with it, the COVID-19 Hygiene Hub. Um, it's apparently a free service that supports, quote, actors in low and middle income countries to rapidly design evidence-based hygiene interventions to combat the coronavirus. I think what they mean by evidence-based hygiene interventions are the instructions that are principally coming out of SAGE, for example, in the UK and the Behavioural Insights team. Uh, these are the rules that uh, these other countries are going to have to obey. So who are the partners? Well, we've got the London School of Hygiene and Tropical uh, Medicine involved again. Uh, but we've also got um, uh, the Centre for Affordable Water and Sanitation, uh, an organisation called Washam, uh, which I didn't get time to have a look at, but uh, we'll leave the viewers to do that. And all this links into the uh, uh, initiatives from the the World Health Organization and UNICEF. So it seems to be that the policy no longer coming out of governments, it's coming from centralized world groups. And of course, at the bottom of your screen there, uh, when we look at who are the steering committee, well, surprise, surprise, we come to the World Bank Group. So we've got big money in there as well. Um, Alex, wherever we go to look at policy, it's not many steps before we're looking at the people who control vast amounts of wealth in the world, whether it's via the hedge funds or it's actually via institutions like the World Bank or the Bank of International Settlements or the European um, in Investment Bank. Uh, money, 
and the control policy, which we're now seeing coming into being, seem to be hand in glove. This is obvious on first principles. We often uh, get accused of conspiracy theory for saying that NGOs set policy. But I can assure you, having seen Whitehall from the inside for some years, and I'm sure it wasn't much different in the, the military ranks that you saw, Brian, time and thinking space are at a premium in these busy jobs, and they're deliberately so, uh, that the policymaking grades are kept over busy, and certainly the government ministers and secretaries, so that they are pressured towards ready-made solutions and briefing papers produced by these NGOs. How have these NGOs written these reports? It is because they have been bankrolled and have all the time in the world to sit outside capital cities, having off sites and getting their suggestions from who knows what. There's so many of these forums where they meet up. Davos has now become one that's known to the public. It wasn't for many years. All the time and money is on the side of the policymakers. The only remedy for this is, is electing independent members of parliament who refuse to sign off on government proposals. But for that, you need people of integrity, independence, and with time to think. You won't get that through a party model. Yeah. Well, whilst all of that uh, high-level control is going on and people are distracted with uh, mind control and applied behavioural psychology, the real dangers come from what's happening on the ground. And uh, I'd like to share with our viewers today this uh, video, two video clips from a gentleman called Wayne Smith. Wayne Smith died fairly recently, but he was doing some really tremendous work to uncover what was actually happening to vulnerable elderly people in care homes. Uh, we were able to obtain this clip from the person who interviewed him. Uh, we're go going to show you a little piece of what he had to say, but encourage viewers to watch the whole of the, the uh, video itself, uh, which is on BitChute, should you want to find it. So let's have a listen to Wayne Smith and what he has to say. Hello, my name's Wayne Smith. Um, I'm doing this video to highlight the end-of-life care drugs and stuff they use in end of life care, it's been actually been ended lives. My father was prescribed two unlicensed drugs for two things he didn't have. One of them was called glycopyronium bromide, and the other one was called midazolam. Now midazolam is used in America for lethal injection. He was prescribed 10 milligrams every four hours, and that is actually a lethal dose. It's actually, if you, if you check the paperwork, it's actually for terminal observation. Mm -hmm. Now my father didn't have either the two symptoms that they claimed he had, it's in, it's in the medical records and it's in the autopsy. Um, so basically I've um, done my homework, checked it with doctors, proper doctors, not cover-up doctors, and they've um, all told me my dad should never have been given those drugs. Uh, these drugs are used routinely in end-of-life care. Um, there's another version of glycopyronium which they use for secretions, it's an oral powder version, which the patient inhales and it does give uh, patients who've been previously heavy smokers a slight bit of relief but generally even according to nice it doesn't really do any good that's 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 why it's unlicensed it's not proven and they've been using these drugs for 50 years i've actually had these drugs removed from the care quality commission website um because they couldn't prove to me there's any clinical evidence for using them and they've been using these for 50 years i've got various sources of all the information there's information on medicines.org.uk, it's, it's on NICE, it's on the NHS website. It's, you know, the information's out there. There was a patient safety warning in 2008 about the overdose of midazolam. They said it shouldn't be more than two milligrams files, because no one knew really uses more than two milligrams. In end of life care, they're prescribing 10 milligrams. 
10 milligrams is a lethal dose. Patient safety experts told me half a milligram is enough to put an elderly patient in hospital overnight. So they, they're prescribing 20 times what a patient would need. Um, basically, that's my story. Um, I've tried to fight everywhere I can. I've been to the NMC, the GMC, um, Care Quality Commission. Not one of them has done their jobs. Um, council were ordered to do a safeguarding investigation by the senior coroner, who's a judge. The council refused. The um, local government ombudsman found the council had done nothing wrong and they upheld the council's decision. I've had the same with the police. I've been to the IOPCC. Police were ordered to do a safeguarding investigation by the senior coroner. I was at the meeting when they said, she said it. They refused. IOPCC found in favour. I've been to the IIPC, what it's called now, um, IPCC, and they've upheld the decision of the IOPCC. So all the way along the line is corruption and unbelievable. I've now found there's thousands of unexplained deaths in hospices. So a very poignant testimony from Wayne Smith. Wayne did uh, try and speak to the uh, UK column some months ago. Circumstances meant that we were never able to uh, get that interview going. However, the gentleman who conducted the interview that we've just seen on screen is well known to us and uh, has uh, researched much of the information that Wayne Smith is talking about. And the UK column over many years has been warning what has been happening to elderly people in care homes. Uh, Feet of Clay is one of our interviews that we, uh, we had up several months ago, probably just over a year ago now. Um, so more and more details coming out about people dying under mysterious circumstances in both care homes and the NHS. And this gentleman has now died after researching in great detail. So he's talking thousands of cases. It's been publicly reported that during COVID, tens of thousands of elderly people died unnecessarily within care homes, still no investigation by the government. But let's just hear a second part to the clip where he starts to put detail on just some of the cases that he was researching. Now, I've, I've found four that are really strong. Um, I've got one in Isha, Princess Alice Hospice. It's uh, a 28-bed hospice. It's quite a big hospice. It should have, on average, 340 deaths a year. In 2011, they had 765 deaths, with 98 recorded unexpected deaths. That's nearly 400 too many. I've got another one, um, which is called um, St Barnabas House in Worthing. In 2012, these figures have come from um, the Coastal West Sussex Clinical Commission Group. In 2012, this hospice, it's a 20-bed hospice, should have on average roughly 245 a year. Yeah, it's 782 deaths there. I've got another one in um, Chichester, St Wilfrid's Hospice, Chichester. It's a smaller hospice, so the deaths should be smaller. It's a 14-bed hospice. The national average for that hospice is 170. In 2012, they had 552 deaths there. It's ridiculous, you know. The figures are off the scale. I've got another one up in um, West Midlands. It's called um, St Giles Hospice. Um, it's, it's a 27-bed hospice. The average for that is about 328 a year. In 2011, they had 1,007 deaths there. It's not a mild thing, it's a, a massive thing. I tried to report the 400 deaths in one year Princess Alice Hospice, Isha, to Surrey Police. Surrey Police told me they will not investigate 
deaths at hospice. That really says it all. The police will not investigate. And of course, we've seen the fact that the police are very, very reluctant to investigate suspicious deaths within hospitals. Uh, but we have, we've now got this, this type of detail. We've also got government figures showing the unnecessary deaths of uh, people um, as a result of the actions over COVID-19. Uh, we've got the data over mid-staff suggesting that hundreds of thousands of people elderly people died unnecessarily. And Alex, uh, the police don't want to know, the government doesn't want to know. Nobody must ask questions about the safety of elderly people in NHS or care facilities. This has got to be orchestrated at high level. We know some of the levels at which it is orchestrated, Brian, because one of the first and most revealing documents you ever showed me was in a memorandum of understanding between what was then called the Association of Chief Police Officers, ACPO, it's changed its name now to uh, National Police Chief Council and PCC, and the Law Society, uh, the professional body for solicitors um, in England and Wales, uh, agreeing that they wouldn't investigate each other. This is completely over the head, of course, of the individual professional responsibility of any lawyer or any constable. And in the case of a constable at law anywhere in the British Isles, they are individually responsible for, and have a, duty, a positive duty to investigate credible reports of crime. Uh, so these cover-ups are fine on paper, and we know the memoranda of understanding in some, uh, understanding in some cases, but they are not, neither lawful nor legal. They are just policy documents. So it, it should come as no surprise, of course. Uh, hospices, you know, we, we uh, hear a lot about them. They are, of course, places where you go to die. Uh, but th this, this seems to be crossing the line to a place where you go to be killed, doesn't it? Well, that, that's what the story seems to be showing. And yes, the gentleman is talking, was talking about hospices. But of course, the data that we've also got from government levels more recently or going back to uh, Mid-Staffs Hospital, for example, uh, we're dealing with NHS hospitals as well. Okay. Um, okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And I'm just going to say uh, that once again, that our only source of funding is from our community and our members. Uh, any rumours that you may hear otherwise is, are completely false. So um, it, it's only your support as members that uh, keeps us going and that would be very much appreciated. And you've said, said that, Mike, because we've had some interesting emails suggesting that there are, at the moment, people um, making accusations, but we can't refute it because we don't know what we're being accused of. Indeed, that's true. Yes. Um, and let's move on. And uh, if you like, uh, or if you'd like to share material that you find on the various platforms, uh, we're also on brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute and Odyssey. Okay. Uh, well, let's put up a UK column um, email, one that's come in. Uh, this is about Alex Thompson, and uh, I think this is a really wonderful email. Dear Brian, contrary to the criticism expressed on Extra News on August 9th about Alex Thompson's decision to follow the PCR testing regulations of a travel, I found his situation personally motivating. I too live abroad in a particular country, which at present is an amber-listed country, while my parents, both in their mid-80s, live in the UK. We last saw each other in the autumn of 2019, and since then, contact has been limited to telephone calls, as neither of my parents have computers or smartphones, enabling us to enjoy FaceTime, Skype, WhatsApp, messaging, etc. 
In the meantime, I discovered UK Column and have followed you constantly, very thankfully, as you have over the months confirmed my suspicions, cleared my doubts and fueled my desire to dig deeper to get the truth into this absurd situation. Unfortunately, my parents got caught up in the single narrative and had their two jabs, which makes me more intent on getting to see them before the winter sets in and the situation gets worse. A trip to the UK means subjecting myself not only to several PCR tests, but to complying with a system I do not approve of, but it will also mean I get to spend time with my parents whose time is running out. Seeing Alex Thompson during his self-isolating process in the UK has spurred me on to make the trip, as, as would any compassionate human being, I believe. Infinite thanks to you all. Well, I think that was a truly wonderful uh, email. So well done to you, Alex, for making the trip and encouraging other people. Uh, also like to say thank you very much to Jimmy, who sent us a lovely card received today. Uh, sincere best wishes to you all and God bless you and the valuable work you're all doing. That came with a small donation. Thank you very much, Jimmy. And a big thank you to one of our Australian viewers who uh, sent us through this remarkable um, Adelaide, Adelaide um, front page from the advertiser, free drink for jabs as businesses take up Vax campaign. So there you are, you can get a glass of wine as long as you've been stabbed. Uh, Adelaide restaurant, uh, that's the name of the restaurant daughter-in-law, is offering a free drink to fully vaccinated patrons to encourage more people to get the COVID-19 jab following similar moves interstate. And another quote was well-known. Sydney restaurateur Luke Mangan also yesterday announced anyone who dined in his flagship restaurant and could prove they'd had the jab would get a free glass of wine during the first three months he was allowed to reopen. So there you are. Get that plane to Australia, um, which you can do if you're jabbed, of course, and get your free glass of wine. I, I Makes well. sense. Okay. Uh, okay. Look, we better uh, remind everybody that uh, uh, Friday will be the last news of the summer. Um, so the UK column office will be closed from the 16th to the 30th of August. The news programme is going to take a break uh, and we will return on Wednesday, the 1st of September. We'd like to send everyone a massive thank you for all the support this year. And in fact, last year as well, because it's just been fantastic. And it's enabled exciting things to happen. More of that after the summer break. Yes. Uh, and Alex, uh, we mentioned uh, Dr. Sam White a couple of uh, programmes ago. I think it was on Friday, but uh, you've got more. Yes, if you go to the URL, which I've put in white on black, just under that title there, uh, or search for Doctors for COVID Ethics Supporting Dr. White, you will see that with a deadline, in fact, of uh, close of business today, so only people who, who are watching live can, can help, there is a call for Dr. White to have endorsements by practicing doctors, scientists, or academics. So if you're not in those categories, even if you're retired from those categories, please don't sign. Keep this uh, expression of support limited to that. D doctors for COVID ethics are collecting these endorsements uh, preparatory to a hearing by the General Medical Council, which regulates general practitioners' fitness to practice in the United Kingdom. Uh, and this is because the GMC 
has following Dr. Sam White's publicity about no longer being an NHS doctor and being a functional medicine doctor, getting away from big pharma instead, has called his mental state into question. That's how uh, fascistic the GMC has become. So if you watch this today, uh, that's the course of action. Why are we keen on helping the likes of Dr. White and uh, getting well-qualified people to support him in this way? Well, it's because the esteemed late Wayne uh, Smith said in that clip you just played, there are cover-up doctors and there are real doctors. And if in the post-NHS world or wherever you live, post-public health world, you want anything more than palliative care 19th century style, you're going to need dissident, well-qualified doctors like Dr. White to, to treat you when the mainstream channels are no longer available. Uh, Gab, in the uh, uh, person of Andrew Torba, its uh, chairman, of course, a suppressed uh, social media channel, has got something which will be of interest to US service members and their family uh, it's uh, a, a one-stop shop called Download COVID Vaccine, vaccine Religious Exemption Documents here, uh, and it provides everything necessary for a US service person to submit, uh, regardless of their religion in question, a religious exemption request to their immediate commander. Uh, this, of course, is because, as we've been covering recently, it is now pretty much obligatory uh, or being presented as such to be jabbed if you're in the US military. Uh, but there is a religious exemption that you don't have to pass some kind of creed test. You simply assert that you are you do have a religious exemption. And with many commanding officers, you will get somewhere if you know about those documents. That's where to find them. OK, Alex, thank you. Let's uh, move on to climate change. Um, and uh, well, we're heading to the Netherlands actually here. Uh, Alex, this is uh, The Telegraph. Uh, and uh, the author here is a, an opinion piece. The author is uh, Professor Chus Berghout. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but uh, there you go. Uh, he's been published in, in the Telegraph in the Netherlands uh, a few times now. And the latest one is this uh, and uh, this article uh, entitled uh, Extreme Warming is a Political Narrative. And he's talking about the sort of what he describes as reluctant admissions uh, from the uh, the Green Lobby, that their calculations and projections are unreliable, unusable, and so on. Um, well, he, of course, uh, well, maybe people won't know this, but he is uh, uh, heads up this organization along with a group of other scientists and politicians, the Global Climate Intelligence Group, which we mentioned a day or two ago. And they have now responded to the report from the IPCC. And I just wanted to run through what they said. So Clintel has carried out a preliminary review of the IPCC summary for policymakers, SPM, of the, uh, the uh, IPCC report um, issued today. Obviously, that was on Monday. Uh, it appears that the uh, summary for policymakers is, as in previous reports, prone to data, data exaggeration and so provides little objective basis for policymaking. Uh, surprisingly, climate scientists from IPCC circles only last week admitted that their new AR6 generation of climate models are overheated and therefore too alarmist. The admission also raises questions on the reliability of temperature forecasts of the IPCC uh, previous generation of models in the 2014 AR5 report, uh, which used an extremely high emission scenario, often inappropriately touted as a business as usual case and used to promote climate, uh, ex extreme climate action. Independent observations had already indicated uh, that the models were too sensitive to greenhouse gas increases, probably by a factor of two. The combination of too high climate sensitivity and too high emissions projections resulted in implausibly high temperature forecasts. Uh, as the new generation models appear to run even warmer, 
They make the equivalent scenarios in AR6 erroneously high. IPCC scientists themselves are beginning to doubt whether their models can be trusted as policy instrument. Uh, the SPM graphic of global temperatures over the last 2,000 years inspires little confidence in that it fails to note the Roman and medieval warming periods with temperatures similar to or higher than now, nor the little ice ages with the coldest temperatures over these uh, two millennia. Uh, Clintel has uh, consistently argued that while the climate is changing partly due to anthropogenic inf uh, influences, there is no climate crisis and that climate policy should be based on prudent, cost-effective adaptation rather than unaffordable, ineffective mitigation. Uh, the new SPM provides little objective ed evidence to change those strongly held convictions. So that was been their position. Um, but uh, it goes on because Willie Boone, who is uh, <laughs> sort of Harvard Smithsonian Center, uh, Center for Astrophysics, a world-renowned scientist, uh, a serious scientist, uh, has been talking about the possibility that we're actually heading into a cooling phase. Uh, what we predict, uh, this is at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, what we predict is that in the next 20 to 30 years will be cold. It will be cold, so it will be a very interesting thing for the IPCC to confront. So, um, you know, because as many people have pointed out, uh, the IPCC's models don't seem to take uh, solar issues uh, or galactic issues into account. Uh, and in fact, the way that they've been trying to uh, uh, manipulate the uh, over-egging of, the, of their latest models was to adjust adjust the cloud models because uh, the cloud models don't seem to be very effective either. So Alex, quite a number of people now speaking out against this, um, but uh, this is what this report is going to uh, run into the COP26 in Glasgow in a month or two's time uh, and is very much being used to drive the uh, the Great Reset policy agenda. Yes, and you know, the, the COP, of course, is a conference of the parties. So as soon as you talk about that, you have to remind yourself parties to what? Well, it's the Paris Accord, isn't it, of 2015? And uh, there, in international law, certain governments bound themselves to follow certain targets. So if you like, the clockwork mechanism was wound up. And it's all about achieve those targets, ding, ding. Uh, a bit like the computer models that you mentioned, Mike, that fail because they don't have any of the wider context of Earth in space factored into them, just the Earth as if it were a, 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 a sort of in vacuo system. So the, the model has been primed. This happens so often in public policy, international law. We must follow these targets. Don't distract us with any facts. We've already made up our minds. So COP26 can be touted as a meeting of scientific brains and conscientious policymakers. It's nothing of the sort. It is a, a checkbox exercise. Have we done enough yet to reduce humanity and its productions? Or do we have to do something more swinging? Yeah, and uh, just very briefly, Alex, of course, one thing that uh, the IPCC isn't mentioning and really isn't getting any coverage in the mainstream press at all is the possibility if not likelihood, that we are heading into some form of grand solar minimum? Well, it's not for nothing that you quote an astrophysicist there. Uh, as usual, the, uh, the post-Soviet world is more uh, open-minded to anything that takes a broad view of physics and uh, the universe. You have to look east uh, often. Uh, and they have, uh, in, in a particular a uh, couple of cases of people who've become well aware, uh, that an audience in the West has become well aware of through ADAPT 2030 and Ice Age Pharma. Some of these Russian climatologists have been quite definitive about it with a number of different data sources uh, pointing to a grand solar minimum in the 2030s, 2040s, which of course will have um, a, a, an effect of hy hysteresis. So after the, the low point of solar activity will come the cooling. 
so you know the rest of uh, of our adult lives uh, so you know the, the, the three of us are different ages but for the rest of our adult lives uh, it is looking pretty likely that we will be shivering uh, indeed okay well uh, let's uh, move on to this uh, from the spectator uh, revealed the BBC guide for covering climate change because, as we all know, Brian, the BBC is completely independent. independent. It's, unbiased. It's, it's completely <laughs> unbiased. It it covers all viewpoints. Um, so no doubt this is going to be very interesting. So what's uh, what's this story in the Spectator saying? Uh, climate change is once again dominating the news agenda. A report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned that even if emissions are cut rapidly, the effects of global warming will be felt across the wor- world. Uh, the report, which Boris Johnson has declared sobering reading, uh, leads the news today with the BBC dedicating seven stories uh, on its homepage today to climate change, to do, today being Monday, of course. Um, so just as well that the BBC staffers were recently treated to an internal audience research briefing, uh, telling them how best to convey messages about climate change to different audiences. The briefing, which one insider described as being more reminiscent of a campaigning organisation, uh, identifies seven uh, different groups of viewers and how to appeal to them. Uh, progressive activists, civic pragmatists, established liberals, loyal nationalists, disengaged battlers, backbone conservatives and disengaged traditionalists. So let's just have a look at uh, some of the graphics. Now, the graphics aren't great quality, that they, uh, the screenshots that they've taken. Um, so all these groups are concerned about cl- climate change, says the BBC, but we need to talk to them in different ways. So talk to them. Yes. Uh, so the percentage of each group that's extremely very or somewhat worried about climate change is in green uh, and uh, progressive activists, 99 percent of them are very worried uh, right down to uh, disengaged traditionalists at 72 percent of them are worried. Um, so let's have a look at uh, backbone conservatives. Uh, they are apparently practical. They've got pride in, Brit- in being British. They're trusting, they're conservative, they're respectful, they're older, they're hardworking, they're traditional. And so they've so the BBC recommendations are that they build on well-established research for engaging conservatives. So that's fantastic stuff. Then we've got disengaged tra- traditionalists. They're older, skeptical, male, traditional, disillusioned. They've got British pride. They're alienated, they're disciplined, they're working class, they're meritocratic. Uh, so we've got a be careful, says the BBC, with climate-led campaigns. Don't use messages about acting on climate change. Talk about built, making manufacturing fit for purpose or building on our proud histor- uh, industrial past, uh, in brackets, green jobs. Okay, so it gets better, Brian, gets better. Loyal nationalists, they're populist, they're traditional. They voted Brexit. This is the only group that voted Brexit, it seems. Uh, authoritarian, uh, they're working class, they're th- because only working class people voted Brexit. Uh, they're threatened, they're patriotic, patriotic, they're baby boomers, and they're proud. So uh, the BBC wants to build on climate concern about feeding fears, sorry, without feeding fears of climate migration. So they've got to engage on the local level and highlight shared experiences, common currency of heat waves, floods, and, so, and storms, and so on. Disengaged battlers are unheard, isolated, fatalistic, environmental, uh, financially insecure, disillusioned, disempowered, urban and frustrated. Uh, and there the BBC recommends that they build trust and they've got to listen to the concerns uh, about and show how climate policies can address their concerns. Um, but this was the bit that really uh, grabbed me. So this was the, uh, the, the sort of uh, summary, meet the audience session on climate change. It took place on the 20th of July from 4.30 to 6 p.m. And who we will speak to is uh, on the left-hand column. 
Uh, and so it's a mix of people who are engaged with climate change as a topic and those who aren't, a mix of locations around the UK, uh, 25 to 50 year olds. And Alex, this is a bit that really grabbed me. BBC approval scores five to eight. So if you don't, I'm not really quite clear exactly what that means. It could mean, for example, that they're only looking for people that, that approve of the BBC within certain categories. So if you don't approve of the BBC, if you're categorized as a one to a four, then you don't get a chance to communicate to the BBC because they won't speak to you. And I presume there isn't anything higher than an eight. Um, so uh, I just, uh, I find this really interesting. I was particularly interested in the comment that the spectator reported um, from the person who attended, who said that this was more reminiscent of a campaign organization. And that certainly is how it comes across. To me, if we look at how the BBC has dealt with the climate issue over the last 20 or 30 years, and particularly if we look at how the BBC has dealt with the COVID issue over the last 18 months, they have been running a campaign and not reporting uh, objectively at all. Yes, uh, it's meet the plebs, but not the plebiest plebs, isn't it? Only those whose pleb score is, is half or less. Um, one of the first things, of course, that uh, Catherine Viner did when she became chief editor of The Guardian, taking over from Alan Rusbridger, is that she sent out a, a memo to all that from now on we must say global heating, not global warming, because it's led by the science, isn't it? So there's a patent example of campaign journalism again. Um, I almost feel sorry for those executives holed up in White City and Salford Quay and wherever now, because they do seem to be losing the remaining handle that they had on the plebs. Uh, that you know, that, interesting the two axes that you showed, the X and Y axis for how do we quadrant our viewership. One axis was how interested are they in solidarity, and the other was how afraid are they. Very much like David Scott's recent speech, Fear Not, you know, get the fear out of your mind and then you can start thinking properly. And very reminiscent also of Laura Dodsworth's book, State of Fear, where she interviewed some of the SPIB psychologists advising, advising the government on COVID uh, adherence. And uh, she was struck by how many of them said, we've got to get solidarity with our neighbour. That's what the mask wearing is all about. So it's these two vague vectors of feeling in the plebs' minds uh, to, to the controllers is enough. To, to plot them on a grid and give them the right narrative. So if you can get rid of the nonsense of solidarity and replace them with historical notions of your, your duties, and if you can get rid of the fear in your head, then you can start clearing your mind of all the box of tricks that you just put up. There's, there's nothing left in the toolbox after those two factors have been removed from someone's mind. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here very quietly because uh, you can just see into the BBC. The BBC is evaluating its audience so that it can use applied psychology and propaganda to get its opinion into people's minds. It's nothing to do with reporting truthful, factual news. This is a propaganda machine. Um, so let's bring uh, Sir Patrick Valance uh, on screen because, of course, he's the uh, UK's chief scientific officer and uh, limiting global warming. He said that 1.5C is ambitious, but not fanciful today's release from the Intergovernmental pa Panel on Climate Change, of course, Mondays, uh, that is, makes plain that our goal should be to drastically reduce global temperature rises. We must achieve that goal. So uh, he also pushed out this graphic alongside that with a quote from him. It's now unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land to unprecedented degree. I think we covered this uh, quote on Monday's program. But it was uh, some of the responses on Twitter that uh, that I thought were were quite worth uh, having a look at. We'll just we'll just put one on screen. Francis Hoare's here, 
monomania without a thought, without thought for the wider consequences, while being governed by technocrats who have neither care nor concern for the wider consequences, is now the default. Well, that was the default through uh, through the COVID crisis so far. It's certainly not going to change in the next year. Uh, it is certainly the case with uh, with climate change. And once again, Alex, we've got someone drawing a, a parallel between the two policies. They do seem to have the same origin myths, don't they? And the, the same worldview, uh, you know, in the beginning was, well, like all religious systems, sin. It's just that the sin is, is people living their lives and doing human activities. You know, and uh, as someone in our chat box has pointed out that there is a third zero agenda coming up. Zero carbon and zero COVID both mean stop human activities. Now the latest campaign that BBC Radio 4 is banging on about is zero traffic deaths. And quite frankly, that is not a policy goal for, to go for. You can only get zero traffic deaths if you ban driving. So again, wherever you see zero, let's eradicate something. Uh, you're not living in the real world where people have a prior anterior and superior right to go about their business. You're living in a world where all the factors are controlled by the shoulds, you know, should and shouldn't in people's minds. So this is not a human-led system, is it? That's absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, so what's David Cameron been up to, Brian? Well, he's been, I think he's been undermining democracy since uh, I think we're going to be having a chat about democracy in a minute. But I just had to bring this one in because UK Column has been um, leading, I think, the uh, discussion about the genomics industry, and there's a lot more to be told. Here was the headline from the Mail. David Cameron landed his bosses at U US genomics giant Illumina, a $123 million Department of Health contract after writing to Matt Hancock to get him to attend a conference. Uh, well, we don't really read too much into that, do we? Uh, perhaps we do. Um, so apparently, Mr. Cameron was a paid advisor for the US biotech gene sequencing company, Illumina. And he told Mr. Hancock he strongly endorsed the firm's invitation to the then health secretary in April 2019. 2019, after receiving Mr. Cameron's letter written from his taxpayer-funded post-Prime Minister office, Mr. Hancock agreed to go to the conference, as you do. Um, he hadn't responded to a letter he'd had from the Illumina Chief Executive, Jay Flatty, weeks earlier. So essentially, Mr. Cameron did some uh, gentle lobbying, and the next result, there's a pretty hefty contract awarded, but of course, nothing there's nothing wrong, been, nothing has been done wrong. A government spokesman apparently told the Mail Online that this contract was signed to help save lives through better diagnosis. Uh, and it was awarded in the correct way through the proper process. And any suggestion of undue ministerial involvement in the decision making is completely wrong. Well, it's interesting that uh, if you're a Labour voter, well, it's good news because Angela Rayner, deputy leader of the Labour Party, said, quote, this. There is rampant cronyism, sleaze and dodgy lobbying that's polluting our democracy under Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. Uh, they hand public money to their mates without a second thought, with NHS staff suggesting that it hasn't been possible to make full use of the capacity the contract provided. The government answer, must answer questions about why it awarded such a huge sum of money without competition in the first place. And then she ends by saying Labour will overhaul the current broken system and replace it with an integrity and ethics commission. So that all seems very good. Uh, but I just have to bring in another photograph from the Mail article, which I found truly wonderful because I think this is 
I've loosely say a couple of toffs um, playing back at their days of being Boy Scouts around the fire. So we got David Cameron and Lex Greensill, um, the main man from Greensill Capital. And of course, this is the other bit of the story because David Cameron's already under pressure uh, for his relationship with the finance firm Greensill Capital um, after denying claims he cashed in uh, more than seven million. So a little bit of uh, money changing hands around Greensill. He's now into the uh, genomics industry. Uh, but the uh, article said that Mr. Cameron also met Vaccines Minister Nawid Zahawi in March to discuss genetic sequencing. And Illumina was given further contracts with Public Health England worth up to £870,000, according to the Times. So it just reminds people, if you go to the UK column and have a look for PCR testing and the genome beast, uh, we've got a, a discussion there talking about the massive rise of the genomic um, sequencing industry and what this really means for UK, and it doesn't look good. Um, but speaking of democracy, uh, well, it's really good news because uh, the government has a new uh, democracy website up. Uh, democracy allows young people to do all kinds of fantastic things. Um, look at this. It's, I mean, you I don't you really lost the words as well today. This, yeah. this, uh, this video clip. But anyway, today, this is all about uh, leading into World Youth Day. Uh, so we've got to be strengthened that uh, democracy is, is, uh, exists. And you can go to this-is-democracy.com to find out more. So let's have a look at that. Here is the website. This is democracy. Uh, what is democracy? Demo democracy is not just a system of government. It is the mechanism that enables all citizens to express themselves without fear. It means that the rights of women and minorities are protected. It allows the press to challenge those in power. And we've seen that for the last 15 months. The press have done a fantastic job. So, you know, this must be, it must be a democratic society we live in. Uh, it allows the press to challenge those in power and to shine a light where it's needed most. It gives citizens the right to religious expression and supports the existence of an independent judiciary because we've got one of those too, don't we? Uh, this campaign and its partners seek to highlight and defend uh, those shared values which underpin democratic societies. Um, and there's a hashtag, Democracy Allies. So who's involved in this campaign? Who are the partners? Well, here they are. Uh, most people recognize most of the flags on there, but we've got uh, Community for Democracies at the bottom. Um, and we've got the WFD. And who is that? Well, that is the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Uh, and they're into all kinds of things, including the, the impact of legislative oversight on government responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm not certain that there is any legislative oversight on government responses to the pandemic, but anyway, that's fine. Let's have a look and see who's funding this lot. Um, well, it's the Foreign Office, effectively. So we've got the uh, Conflict Security and Stability Fund. That's the same uh, Foreign Office budget that uh, funded the White Helmets. Uh, we've got the uh, FCDO uh, Accountable uh, Grant. We've got the FCO Grant in Aid. We've got the FCDO Myanmar uh, Fund uh, we've, and so on. So it's uh, mostly, if not all, FCDO uh, Foreign Office money. There was, there's one that's uh, labeled third parties, but that's only 7% of the income. And European uh, and, Union. 4% uh, of the income comes from the European Union. Yeah. Um, so anyway, getting back to uh, uh, the website, our shared values, uh, what dem democracy means. Uh, the values of democracy. In a democracy, power is held by the people. Well, we've seen plenty of evidence of that in the last 18 months. 
uh, we can impact important decisions by voting for them and by freely expressing opinions. We can also be supported by a fair and independent judicial system and free media. Uh, this creates a system of opportunity and inclusivity, a society where we can all thrive and work together towards a stronger, safer and more resilient uh, society. And uh, so there are the main benefits, freedom of expression, rule of law, independent media and inclusion. And Alex, just before I get you to comment on this, we just got to say, if you want to know what democracy is really about, uh, get onto the uh, UK column website, uh, click on the uh, menu item that says series. And the first item in the list is a dissident's guide to the constitution. And the last three episodes of that effectively uh, are about democracy. But um, this campaign, Alex, seems to be mainly directed um, at uh, other countries, uh, Ukraine being a key one, of course. Uh, but uh, it gives us a clue as to the thinking of uh, the Foreign Office and the British government. A smart comment just now in our chat box by VLV is they wouldn't be pushing, quote, democracy, unquote, unless they had full control over it. And uh, the caption I wrote for one of those episodes of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution that you just put on screen is that democracy is promising peoples that you know they can't have and then exploiting the envy and angst that comes from that. Right. So I mean, we could spend hours discussing this, but we won't now. Um, that there's no meaningful way to define democracy uh, in a way that straddles Canada, the United Kingdom, Estonia, Lithuania and Ukraine. I mean, if you do your Constitution 101 course in any law school, uh, you'll be told about presidential democracies, parliamentary democracies, uh, unitary states, federal countries. Uh, the, the, the NATO members I've just named straddle all of these points of the compass. So they've got there's there's no sensible lowest common denominator meaning of democracy that spans all of them. Uh, you mentioned that this comes from uh, a foreign office cutout called the Whitehall, is it Fund for Democracy, WFD, I think it is, so which Westminster never really Foundation. got off the ground. Yeah, Westminster. That's it, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Yeah. It was it was intended to be something like the CIA's uh, sock puppet, the National Endowment for Democracy, note the name, uh, which by the end of the Cold War was doing the main sock puppetry in the former Soviet Union on behalf of the CIA and also does so in uh, other former and current communist countries. Uh, WFD never got to that level, but you'll notice that they basically leaned on the Baltic and Ukrainian governments to say, would you mind awfully lending your flags to this Whitehall Mandarin exercise or, or think tank exercise, because it will persuade other countries who are more recalcitrant in your neck of the woods uh, to throw in their lot with an Anglo-American think tank definition of democracy. Uh, that's what it's all about. And uh, we'll go into this perhaps more even in extra time because we have uh, we omitted one slide that we wanted to put in today, uh, where, again, Ukrainians are used as sock puppets to proclaim a BBC message and ultimately a British deep state message. Um, these are complicated stories. Just bear in mind, whenever you see Ukrainian and Baltic governments involved, uh, they're doing what they've been trained to do for 30 years by the likes of these Whitehall Mandarins. Uh, yes. And um, I mean, just very, very briefly, Alex, uh, it did. It does amuse me that we're supposedly exporting democracy to other countries. Uh, we're supposed to be the beacon of democracy. But if we look at the, what they were talking about, uh, that Britain is effectively a lawless country. It's it's uh, parliament is not functioning. So the rule of law, you can throw mm. that away. There's no independent judiciary. And particularly with the uh, latest legislation going through, which is going to get rid of judicial review, that even goes further. Uh, and there is no freedom of the press. There's no accountability from the press. There is no fourth estate. So th by their own definition, there is no democracy in the UK. But that's what we want to export, that model. 
Yes, it's the rules-based international order, isn't it, which we also go into. And when we get round to doing episode six of the Dissidents' Guide, we'll be looking at that more particularly. On the other hand, the things that are dangled as carrots in that model, like the protection of minorities, uh, sexual and religious and whatever, uh, these, uh, I know I'd be debated hard for saying this, but these were guaranteed from pretty much 1688 onwards in the Anglo-American world, centuries before anyone said that universal suffrage was a good thing. Uh, so they were actually present before we had democracy, and democracy coincides with the period in which they were taken away. Yes, a good point. Uh, well, if you're going to have a proper controlled democracy, uh, you need uh, to uh, be in control of education. So thank you to our David Scott for uh, flagging this one up. It's a document from the General Teaching Council for Scotland, uh, the standard for full registration, inspiring world-class teaching professionalism. Uh, here's the contents. Uh, but what we've got in trips, I uh, beg your pardon, let's just come back to that again. Um, here's the contents. Uh, but what we got interested in this document is that uh, we found it was um, suddenly starting to talk about intersectionality. Uh, so let's have a little look at the detail here. Here's professional values. And I'm sorry, for some reason, that's not going to work. Let me try and come back to that. Uh, so we've got social justice here, and uh, in the middle of the paragraph, and for some reason my highlighting is, is not going to work on this, uh, it, there's a bullet point that begins committing to social justice through fair, transparent, inclusive, sustainable policies and practices in relation to protected characteristics, age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion and belief, sex, sexual orientation, and intersectionality. Uh, very interesting, that word appears. We can't find any definition of it in the document, uh, but it's a, a key word if you're going to be teaching up in Scotland. Uh, but alongside social justice, we've also got trust and respect, uh, expectations of positive actions that support authentic relationship building and show care for the needs and feelings of the people involved and respect for our natural world and its limited resources. So a little bit of the green agenda creeping in under trust and respect there, Mike. And if we do integrity, is the practice of being honest and showing a consistent and uncompromising adherence to strong moral and ethical principles and values, as long as, of course, those are the ethical principles and values that are set by the uh, council itself. Uh, so this was a bit more. Our increasingly in interconnected and rapidly changing world faces many social, environmental and economic changes. Uh, and an effective response in an inclusive education system is vital if we are to address these. And uh, down here on the right hand uh, corner, we've got this little bit here. Um, we were interested in this because they uh, it says that basically as part of teacher professionalism, professional values are required to be enacted in everyday practice, both within and out with the educational establishment. They support us to ask critical questions of educational theories, policies and practices, and to examine our own attitudes and belief. So it would seem to be that this is actually suggesting that people in the profession can challenge intersectionality. Uh, because they can ask critical questions about it. So we just like to flag that up. But if you don't understand what intersectionality is about, we're not surprised because it's very, very difficult to get your head around it. But it's about really who is the most 
oppressed within society and how the layers of that oppression work. Um, a good article here in Vox about this uh, particular lady, Kimberly Crenshaw, she's the lady that coined the term 30 years ago. It was a relatively obscure legal concept. Then it went viral, although it's very difficult to actually pin down what it's actually saying. But this is a good article, so I encourage you to have a look at it. It says that the concept of intersectionality emerged through the ideas debated in critical race theory. Crenshaw first publicly laid out her theory of intersectionality in 1989 when she published a paper in the University of Chicago Legal Forum titled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. So this was the key part of it. And uh, we just say that really it's a pretty unhealthy theory of social psychology, but apparently it's a, a critical thing for teachers in Scotland to know about. And if you'd like to know more about the General Teaching Council, uh, they've got an initiative which is Into Teaching. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's grammatically correct, Alex. I'm sure you can tell us about that. Um, but uh, if we have a look at that organisation, it's here. And it's all about the path to becoming a teacher. So you're okay to teach in Scotland as long as you uh, absorb intersectionality, although they don't bother to define what they mean by it in their own documentation. Uh, right, uh, Alex, uh, we're, we're just uh, um, out of time, actually. So we'll just do the last, the last uh, little bit here. Um, the, um, just give me one second. Um, and uh, the and finalies for today, beginning with uh, RAF Luton tweeting out, uh, the EcoDefense 209 unmanned tank is the world's first environmentally friendly battery-powered battery driverless tank. It's powered by 142 AA batteries and can be remotely operated via an Xbox controller from up to eight feet away. It will be tested at the next London protest. And for those who don't know, of course, RAF Luton is a spoof site. There is a Royal Air Force uh, base in Bedfordshire at Chicksands and a couple of others, Henlow. But uh, RAF Luton is, is a well-known spoof. And uh, before we uh, move on from that one, it's not entirely uh, spoof that an Xbox uh, is used because the U.S. Navy has said that with its, I think, missile targeting training on board for those who are going to be on board warships they are actually uh, already in prototype using xbox because that's what the young folk use to guide missiles well in it to, to play games and now to guide missiles but let's go to the follow-up by the scottish conservatives de facto leader uh, certainly their biggest hitter murdo fraser uh, who was interviewed of course by david scott on the northern exposure channel on youtube not long ago and uh, he is pretending to take it seriously to, to go along with the gag. And he says, great to see this. Hopefully we'll see it. That's the battery powered Xbox tank deployed on Glasgow streets to deal with protesters during the conference of the parties 26. Really good that it's eco-friendly. Um, of course, there are claims that certain Scots don't know that RAF Luton is a spoof because it's uh, everything south of the border is England shire to them. At one point, even David Scott seemed to be taken in by RAF Luton, but I'm pretty sure that Mr. Fraser knows that RAF Luton is a spoof. But like all good parodies, parodies it only works because it contains a kernel of truth. Uh, and finally, then the Telegraph uh, variants, or this COVID variants, uh, or SARS-CoV-2 variants, could be named after star constellations when Greek alphabet runs out, says World War sorry, World Health Organization, COVID chief. 
There we are, the elegantly highlighted and layered Maria von Kerkhover, the World Health Organization's COVID supremo, um, is uh, perhaps gesticulating there at, as to how teeny tiny the Greek alphabet is with a mere 24 variant letters of letters of concern for the, for the sorry variant letters for the variant of concern uh, and perhaps by contrast if we want nice gestures you know there's there's that many constellation names available there's squillions of stars in the sky so uh, we can go on trademarking those vocs till kingdom come uh, can i just say alex i did get criticized a couple of weeks ago for making my uh, not one iota joke uh, for not pronouncing yota correctly uh, but uh, uh, anyway uh, we'll let that one pass yeah did you have anything else before we go? I was only going to say that our audience, I think, is realising today that we're running out of ways of describing the madness we seem around us. So if there's any pauses, that's because we can't actually think of the words. Um, I'd just like to say before we, we close today, a lot of people have asked us about the court case with Wilfred Wong. Um, Wilfred and five others have been found guilty, so they're awaiting sentencing at the moment. Um, we feel it best that we don't make uh, protracted comment about what's taken place until uh, sentencing is complete, um, and then we'll be happy to comment on the matter. But it does look uh, pretty serious for for all of the people, um, along Wilfred and the people alongside him. Um, so that was the key point. Uh, and just a uh, final comment then, just to remind everybody, summer holiday, we are taking one this year. It will be the last that we do. Uh, but uh, 16th to the 30th of August, the UK column office will be closed. There'll be no news programme during that time. And we will return uh, on the 1st of September. So Friday's uh, news programme this week will be the last before the summer break. Uh, OK, somebody has asked in the chat box, guilty of what? It was conspiracy conspiracy to kidnap i should have said that yeah. for the wilfred one case um, um yes i was just going to say we'll be back on the live stream in a few minutes yes thanks for joining us and uh don't sit there just watching uk column do something because it's the action that conquers the fear and as uh, alex has said that's what clears the head thanks for joining us bye-bye